Hey everybody, it's Mark. Welcome or welcome back to the New Spring Church Podcast. Hey, at the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download our free New Spring app where you can access all of our recent message content. Actually, the app is the easiest way to share all this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around here at New Spring. But most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Enjoy. What does it mean to be a Christian? In our world, it's kind of a classification term. It's part of a nomenclature. Uh, If I say I'm a Christian in the way our world categorizes things, it means I'm not a Muslim, I'm not a Hindu, I'm not a non-theist. It's a word that puts me in a population column. Statistically, it's said that 29% of the world's population are Christians. But deep inside, I think we all know that's man-made stuff. You know, the problem with man-made stuff is it, it's, it's not a currency that works in heaven. I get asked this question a lot by people asking me, what is your opinion on things? What do you think? Well, what I think really doesn't matter a whole lot because, see, it, it doesn't have any currency in heaven. I can think something is true. I can claim that it's true. But if it's not true, it has, it, it, it's not going to go anywhere in heaven. I could say, well, my church teaches this, but that has no currency in heaven. Uh, and I get asked that question every once in a while about New Spring. You know, what does New Spring teach on this? And it's a fair question. I try to answer the question. But I always want to make sure we fully understand that what New Spring teaches on something, if it doesn't line up with the Word of God, it has no currency in heaven. It doesn't go anywhere. So I think we know when we talk about this nomenclature stuff that it's not real. It's systematized. We also know that some of the most horrible things in the history of the world have been done by people who claim to be Christians. But then that's also true about people who claim to be Hindus, people who claim to be Muslims, people who claim to be non-theists. Every once in a while, a non-theist will say some of the most horrible things have been done by people who claim to be Christian. Hey, I agree. Some of the most awful things in the world have been done by people who claim to be non-theists. Study the history of the Soviet Union, the history of communist China. The deal, the problem with this is the human heart is wicked according to the word of God. And, you know, all of these human classifications show the wickedness of the human heart. But we're not here to talk about those other groups. We're here to talk about Christians today. And the fact that Christians have done bad things makes us know that they weren't real because there is no resemblance between them carrying that name and the person of Jesus Christ. You and I live in a world where that term Christian has been so stretched out of shape that we've actually begun to invent ways of classifying Christians into subcategories. I am a blank Christian. I am a progressive Christian. I am a conservative Christian. I'm a charismatic Christian. I'm a denominational Christian. I am a Catholic Christian. Sometimes People will use their race to say, I am, uh, and, and identify by race. I am an evangelical Christian. And, and we use all those terms. And there's a, there's a legitimacy to using those terms because it at least helps people sometimes know the perspective that we're coming from. But let us pull back from that for a moment and look at things in biblical terms. In biblical terms, nothing belongs in the blank before Christian. Anything that belongs, anything that's in a blank before 
Christian means that I put that before Christian. Now, there can be things in the blank after Christian, but not before. In fact, Jesus made this very clear when he was on the earth. He said, even if we don't love the people, if we love the people even closest to us more than we love Christ, we can't be his disciple. But we live in a world where we have to use those terms because Christian has been so stretched out of shape. So what's going on in this series, and I pray that it's going to be life-changing for all of us, I want to ask the question, what if we forgot all this man-made religion stuff? What if, we, what if we forgot this human classification system, given the fact that it has no currency in heaven anyway? What if we set all that aside and we learned what it meant to really be, in the biblical sense of the word, a Christian? Would it surprise you to know that the term Christian wasn't used by people who self-identified? It wasn't like there were people in the first church that said, oh, we're Christian. It was people on the outside of the church who looked at the church and said, oh, those people are Christians. And I'll tell you how it came about. In the first century, as the church was getting started, Rome ruled the world, but Rome allowed, Rome allowed some countries to kind of have their own governing identity as long as it didn't conflict with Rome. Well, what that created was a community oftentimes of people that, well, they would identify by whatever power structure that they aligned with. There would be those who would say they were Caesar's people. And, and you just knew that. This is a Caesar guy. This is a Caesar gal. This is a person that said, I'm all about Rome. And then the Herods were on the throne. The Herods had been placed there by Rome. They were kind of friendly with, friendly with Rome, but they also had commonalities with the people groups that lived there. And so there would be people who would say, well, I really don't want to line up with the Caesar, but I'm a Herod person. And, 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 and that's because, again, that was kind of understood. That's just the way the culture was. This is a Caesar guy. This is a Herod guy. But then there were those people in the community who came along and said, we don't worship Caesar. We worship Christ. And so those who were standing back trying to figure out who they were said, oh, those are Christ people. And that's where the term Christian came along. And that's how it started. But you and I find ourselves, most of us watching are in the United States, we find ourselves 2,000 years later with that term Christian so stretched out of shape that it bears almost no resemblance to those first followers of Jesus in Antioch. So in the last 30 or 40 years, many of us have started using a different term and a good one. Maybe it's a term that really kind of goes back more to the very basic of the Christian faith, and that is we have said, I am a Christ follower it distinguishes me from just being part of a population nomenclature, but it says, I am someone who follows Jesus Christ. So let's go to that question. Am I a Christ follower? And you don't need to answer that for me, but every person needs to answer that for yourself today. Am I a Christ follower? Well, forgive me for being too simple, but let's start here. It would take two things to be a Christ follower, wouldn't it? You would have to have Christ. And then you would have to have a follower. Well, right out of the box, we know that there are two things that could cause us to be short or to come up short there in being Christ followers. First of all, it would be possible to take Christ out and say, I am a blank follower. In other words, I'm an adherent to a system. I'm an adherent to a school of thought, but I've taken Christ out. Well, here's what we do know in the 21st century so-called American Christianity. is when we take the real Christ out, what we really put in the place of Christ is my ideas. In other words, I imagine a Christ. In fact, there is a very popular woman who's a Christian author who said something in, 
I, insane, really. She said every 500 years or so, people reimagine Christ. Well, whenever you imagine a deity, that's called idolatry. Christ is not changed by our imaginations. But we live in a culture today where there is this school of thought that says, I am going to, I'm going to imagine who, I'm, who I assume Christ to be and then follow that Christ. I am drawing my own picture. Many years ago, as a young preacher, I read a story that happened in a Sunday school. There was a teacher teaching small children, and she was giving them the opportunity to express themselves by drawing pictures before they got into the lesson. She just told the kids, draw whatever you want to draw. And she was coming by and looking at each drawing. One kid drew a giraffe. Another kid tried to draw Noah's Ark. She came to this third boy. She couldn't tell what he was drawing. She said, what are you drawing? He said, drawing a picture of God. She said, well, nobody knows what God looks like. He said, they will when I get through. <laughs> now, that's sort of a postmodern concept of God. I'm, I'm drawing my picture of God. I've even had people tell me this. Well, my God wouldn't do X. You don't own a God. That's the whole problem. The whole problem is it's my God. And, and really, at the end of the day, it's just my imagination. So I am a blank follower. There's the verse in the Bible that talks about this kind of thing that creates chill bumps in me just as I speak about it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 4, Paul said there are people who follow a different Jesus and they believe a different gospel. But there isn't a different Jesus and there's not a different gospel. So that's the first possibility that could come up short. I am a blank follower. The other possibility is to know who Christ is but not follow him. I am a Christ blank. I, I know Christ or I know about him, but I'm not a follower. It would be to live in such a way that is rebellious against him. You know, it's interesting. The first mistake is very popular in secular circles. This second mistake is very popular in traditional Christian circles. I know who Jesus is, but I'm a hypocrite. I don't follow him. And Jesus asked this crowd, why do you keep calling me Lord, Lord, but you don't do the things which I say? But I know that your goal today, at least I hope and believe that it is, your goal today is to truly follow Jesus. You want to start walking in his steps all the way till that moment where you follow him into heaven itself. That means we get both things down. We truly know who Jesus is, and we have a, no, stay with me, New Spring, we have a desire to follow him. You're not going to be perfect. I can't be perfect for 30 minutes. But my heart is to follow Jesus. My heart is not to rebel. My heart is not to ask, what can I get away with? What can I call right that's wrong? I may be wrong, and I fail God many times, but I don't want to. My heart is to follow him. That's what we want to be today. We want to know who Jesus is, and we want to have a heart to follow him. So where would we start? I'm going to take you to a really basic place today. By the way, even if you've been a Christ follower for a lot of years, Go ahead and work with me through this, because for all of us, it's important to revisit the very, the very foundation. The most successful college basketball coach of all time was a guy who coached in the 60s and 70s. His name was John Wooden, and he coached UCLA. By the way, you want to know what his winning record was? He coached 27 years and won 10 NCAA titles. I didn't say he went to the NCAA 10 times. I didn't say he went to the Final Four 10 times. He won the title 10 times out of 27 years of coaching. Do you know how John Wooden would start the first basketball practice with the best bas college basketball players in the world every, every year? His first practice, he would hold out a basketball and say, gentlemen, this is a basketball. Every first practice, John Wooden started that way. 
Well, today, that's what I'm going to do with all of us. Let's start with the very basics of what it means to be a Christ follower. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 19, Jesus said to the first followers of him, Come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Now, he will make us all fishers of men, but I want us to understand that in each of our lives, God has a specific plan and a specific will for our lives. So for, allow me the latitude to stop that statement just a little early. I believe what Jesus is saying to every one of us is, Come, follow me, and I will make you. Many of us come from a religious tradition that says we have to make ourselves into something that God will accept. But the teaching of Jesus is 180 degrees from that. Jesus said, you come follow me and I will make you. I don't know everything you're supposed to be. You're, you're God's child with special gifts and special opportunities. What God is going to make you into isn't necessarily what he's going to make the person sitting next to you into. Now, he may bring your, bring your plans together, but God wants to make each one of us into a special person who is a daughter or son of him who follows him. And Jesus said, you come follow me and I will make you. There is something very important that each of us has to understand right now. It is so easy in our culture to segregate our life, to say this is my faith life and this is my work life or education life or family life or whatever. Sometimes we get the idea that God knows all about our faith life, but we know the stuff that we're really good at. Jesus had to explain this to his first followers, the leaders who would lead the early church. He had to explain to them right out front that it wasn't just that he knew more about God's life. He knew more about their daily life. You know, of course, that the majority of the followers of Jesus, not well, at least the, 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 the single occupation that more of them had than others, was, was fish, fishing, fish, being fishermen. And the first disciples uh, were, well, of course, you know, the guy that ultimately that we'll know is Peter. His name was Simon at the time. They were just kind of getting to know Jesus. And so Peter and his partners have been out fishing all night, and they come back, and Jesus is trying to teach. And He's at the Sea of Galilee, and if any of you have been to the Sea of Galilee, you know it's really a lake. And if you know, especially there in Capernaum, you know that you can just like find yourself backed right into the water if a crowd was getting closer to you. So Jesus needed to teach, and so he asked Peter, Can I can I stand on your boat and talk to the crowd that were there on the shore? And Peter said, Sure. So when Jesus got through teaching, he wanted to do something good for Peter. And he said, Peter, let's go fishing. Now Peter's thinking to himself, You may know God but I know fishing. And he was saying, Jesus, this is the wrong time to go. You go at night. We went at night and nothing's biting. We went out there all last night and we didn't catch anything. But he says, look at this, uh, verse five, if you say so, I'll let down the nets. And this time their nets were so full of fish that they began to tear. Soon both boats were filled with fish and on the verge of sinking. And Peter was like, okay, God, I get it. Jesus, I get it. it. It's not that you just know more about the Bible. You know more about fishing than I know. And that's why God is telling all of us to follow, follow Jesus. You may be an extremely fine lawyer. I know some of the finest lawyers in our state are at New Spring. But Jesus knows more about law than you know. You may be a great surgeon. Some of you are great surgeons. But Jesus knows more about surgery than you know. You may be an engineer, but Jesus knows more about engineering than you know. You may be a rock star as a teacher, 
When you go into the classroom, you're in your element. But Jesus knows more about teaching than you know because he's God. And so that's what he's saying to us today. Come follow me and I will make you. Well, we're, we're at the starting point today, so here's what we have to, have to grasp. The most beautiful thing to me about following Jesus is that following him is unlike any other relationship. You and I live in a performance-based world. We are, we are trained to believe that if we perform, we, be, we will be rewarded. And consequently, a lot of the relationships that we have as human beings are performance-based. In fact, even some of the healthier relationships still have that performance-based aspect to it. But a relationship with Jesus is completely different. And, and let me just stop for a moment. I believe one of the ultimate challenges for people to know that they have a relationship with Jesus is oftentimes we try to drag and click the way human relationships work and project that onto God. What we must know from the beginning is that any relationship with Jesus starts with security. With Jesus, he gives us acceptance first. He says, come like you are. I will receive you with your warts and flaws and your spiritual bankruptcy, which we all have. I mean, look at the Bible. Look at the Samaritan woman, married five times, divorced five times, sleeping with the man who wouldn't give her his name. She and Jesus are about as far apart as human beings can be, and yet Jesus met her, and what did he do? He received her. He said, I can give you living water. I can give you a life. What about the thief on the cross who had absolutely nothing to offer to Jesus? He was dying, and yet Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. He receives us just as we are. I've talked to many people through the years who would say, Mark, I asked them, do you know for sure you're going to heaven? They would say, you can't know for sure. You have to wait till the end. Well, the only problem is that just calls God a liar because the Bible says over and over and over that I have acceptance in Jesus Christ, that he receives me. He receives me unconditionally. Well, how can I know that I'm sure that I have eternal life today? I'm going to ask five questions, and we're going to let the Bible give the answers. i got to tell you, this is part of the reason why I had five Noah's windows this week because... Picking five verses when there are hundreds, if not thousands of verses in the Bible that answer these questions is a challenge. But I'm going to ask five questions, and when I get through, we're going to know the answers to these questions from the Word of God. Here's number one. How do I get in? How do I get into God's family? Number two, why do I need to be saved? Number three, can it really be that simple? And number four, what if I fail? And number five, how can I be sure? Those are pretty good questions, right? Okay, let's tackle them. How do I get into God's family? Hold on to something tight if you come from traditional religion. Because a lot of us have been reared in traditional religion, and we said, well, I know I got into God's family because my parents had me baptized, or I know I'm in God's family because I've been in church ever since I've been a little kid. Those may be okay within certain contexts, but none of those are how you get into God's family. How do you get into God's family? Let me take the most well-known verse of the New Testament, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world. Your opportunity to be in God's family starts in the heart of God. Do we feel that today? Because see, some of us have grown up in a religion that has the idea that God is some cosmic killjoy in heaven with this big hammer just waiting for us to do the wrong thing so he can drag us to hell. But the Bible tells us that it all starts in the heart of God. God so loved the world. Now, notice where it goes next. He loves the world, so it goes wide, doesn't it? 
I mean, his love is big. It's the whole world. But now notice something. Notice the beauty of God's love, how that it goes to the whole world, and now it comes to one individual. God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him, whoever. Okay, now we're talking about one person. Whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. How do I get into God's family? There is one word that the Bible uses over and over and over and over. And it's such a challenge that most people will not accept this. It's that human thing of performance that messes us up. It is the word belief. That is how you get into God's family. No more, no less. Now, a question I get asked a lot is, how do I know what real believing is? You know, it's kind of like, what is the, is, what's the meaning of is? What is the meaning of belief? There are three things necessary to believe. Number one, there must be a message to believe. You can't believe something if there's no message to believe. So number one, there is a message. That is the good news. That is the gospel. The second part of believing is to mentally agree. The third part of believing is to rely on it. Now, let me give you an example of the distinction between the last two. I never flew till I was 35. I have severe agoraphobia. You know, I remember I was speaking in Toronto one time, and they said they had this big, tall space kind of thing where you can go up into it, and the bottom is plexiglass. You walk out, on, you walk out over the city. They said you can walk out on that plexiglass, and you can see the city of Toronto. I said, no, I can't because I'm not going up there. I, I don't, I have fear of height. So I never flew till I was 35. Now I fly all over the world. I've flown everywhere since then. But here's the thing. Before I flew, I, I knew there was a message to believe. Flying is safer than driving. I agreed with that. I agreed with it mentally. I could give you the statistics. I could, as an old debater, I could debate the case that flying is safe. But I would not get on the plane I'm like the old man, you know, as he flew for the first time and his family said, you know, how'd, how'd you like the flight? He said, well, it was okay, but I never did put my whole weight on the thing. <laughs> there is that moment when I walked on the plane and said, okay, I may be scared to death, but I'm here. And, and see, that's the thing for some of us here today. We're not sure. There's a whole lot of what God says in his word that we, we're still kind of unsettled about, but there's that moment when we get on the plane. There's a message to believe. Jesus died for my sins. He arose from the grave. I've been told that if I believe God has a deal on the table, I've heard that message. I agree with it mentally, and I'm stepping out, and I'm getting on board. That is what it means to believe in Jesus Christ, and that's how you get into God's family. All right, that's beautiful. Let's go to the second question right now. The second question is, why do I need to be saved? Now, there is a flawed concept, and it's a terrifying flawed concept because it'll keep a person from being saved. And it goes like this. I've always been saved. Well, no one's always been saved because the Bible says the only way to be saved is believing, and you now know the formula for believing. Well, here's the thing. There has to be a message, and you you didn't know that message at one point, so there was nothing for you to agree with yet. You had to hear that message, but beyond that, you have to become aware of your need for a Savior because it is irrational and incoherent to ask to be saved if I don't feel like I need a Savior. There are so many verses in the Bible that could answer this question, but I want to pick one particular one. And this goes back to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 1. When, uh, and this is a conversation between the angel and Joseph. He's been engaged to a woman named Mary. He, as far as he knows, she's a virgin. 
But all of a sudden, Mary comes up pregnant, and Joseph knows it's not his baby. Fortunately, an angel comes along from heaven to explain things to Joseph. Now, this is where I want to pick it up. Because the angel says to Joseph, she will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. Because. Okay. You understand now that that word because means there's something in the name of Jesus that makes sense. See, the the New Testament name Jesus is the same name as the Old Testament name Joshua. That's a shortened version of uh, Jehovah Hoshea. Jehovah is God. Hoshea means salvation or God is my savior. And it was shortened to Jehoshua, then Joshua, and then the Greek form, it became Jesus. Now, the angel says to Joseph, you'll call this baby Jesus because he will save his people from their, heads up new spring, sins. Why is it that there are those in America today who will pray for Jesus to save them, but their lives are never changed? This creates a problem for a lot of people standing back, and they'll look and say, oh, this is cheap grace. Well, cheap grace is an oxymoron, because grace is a gift. It can't be cheap. I mean, if you got cheap grace, you paid too much for it. But the reason why they say stuff like that is they see people that will like make a, a prayer, but their lives are never changed. And I'll tell you what I've come to watch and see to be true. There are people who want to be saved from hell, but they don't want to be saved from sin. In other words, they want to say sin is okay. The culture teaches that certain things are okay that God calls sin. And so consequently, they want to say those things are okay in order to be in line with the culture. But if they ask Jesus to save them, God in heaven is going to like, I don't know what to do with that prayer because you want me to save you from something you think is okay. That's, in, that's insanity. And that's the reason why today we have so many people that claim to be Christians, but they're not Christians. If they were to die, they would go straight to hell because they never have understood that Jesus came to save us from our sins. Listen, we're all sinners, every single one of us. There's a lot of junk in our life that's bad stuff. There is in my life. The only way I can be saved is to come to God and be honest about that and say, God, I am spiritually bankrupt and I am hopeless without you and I need somebody to save me from my sin. And that is why you need a savior. And I have the joy of standing before you today, all of you here and those of you watching online, and I have the joy of saying anybody can be saved. However, if a person says, I'm going to hold on to sin, you can't be saved as long as you're there. I love you enough to tell you that. Because, see, someday we'll be at the great white throne of God. And I don't want you to get there and say, well, I sat under Mark Hoover's teaching and he never told me. Okay, can it really be that simple? A few moments ago, I said, believing. Here you are, you're a desperate sinner like me. And you you come before God and God says, believe? I mean, I don't have to join a church. I don't have to like do community service. I mean, how is, can it really be that simple? Why is this cosmically important? So much of religion, even religion that teaches grace for salvation, So much of religion comes from that performance-based system. There is an attempt to protect God from himself. God, this is too big a gift to give someone who just believes. I want to show you one of the most important and yet under-taught verses in the Bible. Because the verse I'm about to show you shows you why it can only be believing. 
See, God is not, not up in heaven before the world was created thinking, I want to save the human race, so I'm going to make a list of things that I could get people to do to get into my family. Oh, I guess I'll just sign off on believing. It's not that way at all. There are no other options. I'll show you why. Romans 4.16. Therefore, the promise depends entirely on faith. Big words. In order that it might be given as an act of grace or unmerited favor. Do we understand that the moment that we add anything to the grace of God, it isn't grace anymore. There are a lot of good things that we could add to, to, to faith. We could talk about baptism and church membership and doing good things and, and loving your enemies and all these things are wonderful things that every Christ follower should do those things. But here's the thing. The moment we add that to the entry point, the moment we say, well, grace is not quite enough. You have to do this too. And then it's not grace anymore. So you understand it has to be by believing. There's no other option. That, and, and the thing about believing is it's such a beautifully low threshold that even a thief on the cross dying can access that grace. Even a Samaritan woman can get a drink of that living water. E e even people like murderers who have, have, through the years who have come to faith in Christ, they can, they can reach that threshold of believing. Now I know, I know, I know. I was born at night, but not last night. I pastored 44 years. I know somebody's stepping back with their arms folded. And you're like, well, you believe, but you have to do this too. Listen, you may think, you may think that you're a deep Christian. I want to tell you, you're not in the door yet because your belief that something has to be added to grace is blocking the door for you. And that is why even though you call yourself a God follower who's deep and you know a ton of scripture, you wake up at three o'clock in the morning. I know you do. And you're not sure you're going to heaven. That's why. It is grace alone. What if I fail? What if I say, okay, I believe on Jesus. I'm coming. Lord, here I am. But six weeks out, my pathway has been pretty bad. And you know, in our world today, we, even in families sometimes, if a person goes far enough one direction or the other, it's like, uh, well, you know what? You, don't, you can't stay here anymore. Or in relationships, well, you know what? I put all your luggage out on the curb. Now, as I said a few moments ago, there are those who teach you can lose your salvation. So consequently, and this, there's no other way around this. I mean, this is just a, this is just a logic, a step of logic. If I can lose my salvation, I do not have eternal life right now. I have term life. So here's the thing. If I can lose my salvation out there, it's not eternal now. I mean, I hope I get, I hope I get to the end and maybe it will be eternal life. But listen to the words of Jesus. Because Jesus is about to nail this down and bolt it down after he nails it down. Here we go. Jesus said, I'll tell you the truth. Those who listen to my message and believe in God who sent me. Okay, I'm putting my hand up. That's me. I've heard the message. You're hearing it right now. I believe on Jesus. I believe that God sent him. Okay, Jesus said, I'll tell you the truth. I'm talking to you. Those who listen to my message and believe in God who sent me. Can I have a few extra minutes today? Yeah. Have eternal life. Now, have is a present tense verb. I have it right now. I own it right now. I have it. Eternal life. Now, that'd be enough. If Jesus put a period right there, that'd be adequate. But he, he, just, he wants to keep rolling here. They will never be condemned for their sins. Ooh, that's awesome. If you put a period there, that'd be, that'd be sweet. 
but he keeps rolling. I tell you the truth, those who listen to my message and believe in God who sent me have eternal life. They will never be condemned for their sins, but they have already passed from death unto life. I'm already on the census book of heaven. I'm already a citizen of heaven. I have eternal life. In fact, in Jude 24, the Bible says, to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence, hello, without fault and with great joy. How many of you think about someday I'm going to stand before God and God's going to call me to stand there in center stage and God's going to say, okay, Mark, we're going to get down to cases here and we're going to judge you. But the Bible, did you see this a moment ago? I rolled right past it. The Bible says to him who is able to present you. I believe that moment will come when I will stand before God and I will give an account. But I believe when that moment comes, the Lord Jesus Christ himself will come over as my advocate and take me by the arm and say, Father, this is Mark Hoover. We could talk about a lot of things here, but we're not because my blood covers those things. And I want to present him to you, Father. And you'll notice as you open the books there and see his record, it'll say, see Jesus Christ. Can you grasp that today? Now to him. You say, Mark, I don't see how that's possible. It says to him who is able. I'm not able to present myself faultless. I don't have a single day that I was faultless. But Jesus, because his blood is covering my sins, can present me absolutely faultless before the throne of God. And what so many people fear, I can look forward to celebrating. Well, how can I make sure? Because, you know, it'd be the worst thing in the world to get to the end of the line and be surprised. That's a bad place for a uh-oh. Well, there's only one verse in the Bible that tells us to examine ourselves. Now, this verse is really important because, see, here's the thing. There's something with a lot of us watching today that keeps us unsettled. Because something happened when we were really young. Maybe our parents did something that kind of like got us into the church. Or maybe you were with a group of kids when you were really small and you made some kind of commitment to God. And, and so you're, you're, you're older now and you look back on that and you say, well, I don't really know what happened. Did I do it the right way? I don't remember if I really thought it through. But I don't want to disrespect what my parents did. And, and so maybe I'm just going to like stay in Never Never Land. Now I'm talking to some of you all the time you try to go back and look at something that happened in the past religiously or spiritually and try to figure, is that, is that what I needed to do? I've actually heard preachers preach that you should go back and do that. Did you know that the only verse in the Bible on examining yourself says that that's not the way to do it? 2 Corinthians 13, 5 says this, examine yourselves as to whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? The only verse that tells us to examine ourselves doesn't ask us to find our birth certificate. It says, check your pulse. Is Jesus in you? I am desperately praying for something. I am praying that today is a day where many of us who have been unsettled walk out of here sure. Because you see, when we're confident, that's when we really start living like a daughter of the king. When we're confident in the grace of God, that's when we start getting radical about following Jesus. That's when we start going out to be a real son of the king. So I want to give you a thought. 
I read this story many years ago when I was a young preacher. It goes back to the time of Queen Victoria in England. India was a protectorate at that time. And there was a little boy who was a Maharaja who when the Queen Victoria had visited India, he gave her a magnificent diamond, became part of the crown jewels. But he got to be a full-grown man, and he was making a state visit to England. And I don't know if it was his advanced people. I've read a couple of different stories on this. Or if he said it personally. I think it was his advanced people, If I, the first story I read. He had sent a message that he would like to have his diamond back when he was in the presence of the queen. Now, you don't ask the queen for one of her crown jewels. It's just, you don't do that. But Victoria did not want any kind of skerfuffle in a state visit. So she instructed her people, go to the Tower of London or wherever the crown jewels are and bring that diamond out, put it on a pillow, and we'll give it back to the Maharaja. So when he was in the presence of the queen, they took that diamond and they gave it back to him. He walked over to the window where the sun came through and he examined the diamond a little bit and looked at it. And then he did something very strange. He walked over to Queen Victoria and he knelt down on his knee and he held out that pillow and he said, ma'am, I gave you this diamond when I was a little boy and I didn't know what I was doing and I didn't know what it was worth. But today with all my heart, as a full grown adult, with all the strength of my life, I wanna give it to you from my heart again. And that's what some of you need to do today. You're not exactly sure what happened when you were a kid, but you know now, and on this day in September 2020, in such a strange year, you can nail it down and say, today, I don't know what is in my past, but I'm going to settle this today. I do believe in Jesus. I do believe he died for my sins. I do believe he arose from the grave. I want Jesus to be my savior, to save me from my sins, and I want to follow him. If that's what you want today, I'm going to lead you in a prayer, step by step, and if you want to settle it today, pray with me. Here we go. Dear God, I am a sinner. I am spiritually bankrupt. I come just like I am. I believe Jesus died to save me from my sins. I believe Jesus rose from the grave. Today, I want Jesus to be my savior and king. In the name of Jesus, I pray, amen. If you're here today, And because whether it was years ago or just a minute ago, because you have put your faith and trust in Jesus, if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, would you raise both your hands and say, I am a child of the King. And I know it with all my heart. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in Wichita, the surrounding area, we'd love for you to engage with us in one of our weekend services. For directions, service times, and information about our incredible kids and student environments, visit us at newspring.org. One more time, newspring.org.